Father, we again ask for your blessing on your word. Pray that it would be fruitful in our lives and show us exactly what you want us to know, what you want us to glean, what you want us to walk away with, that we might be strengthened in our faith and give a reason for the hope that lies within. I will trust you for this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we're currently in John chapter 5. In John chapter 5, God wants us to know at least four things, uh, major things that when we go through this, you'll see what's involved. <clears throat> there was an act of healing by Jesus. There was an accusal and defaming of Jesus. There was an authentic or the authentic claims of Jesus and refusal to accept Jesus. So it takes this progression, progression where there is a pool of Bethesda, where a healing takes place. Once it does, the Jews get upset and they don't like the fact that a healing takes place on the Sabbath. And not only does it take place on the Sabbath, but when they find Jesus and they start asking him about this healing on the Sabbath, he makes at least 10 claims inside of this chapter to authenticate that he has the power, the ability, and the authority to do miracles. And he is, in fact, God's son, the Messiah, God in human form. That's what he communicates in this particular chapter. Then the people get all upset, the Jews, the leaders of the Jews, they get very much upset and they just refuse to believe, even though he gives these 10 different things in the scripture. And by the way, as we're going along, if you guys have a question, ask the question. We can do it in a setting like this. So the first one on your outline here, we have an act of healing by Jesus. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now there were... there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool which in Aramaic is called Bethesda and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Now if you go there today, if you are standing in the middle of the old city of Jerusalem and you turned north, all the way on the outside is the walled Damascus Gate. But before you get to the Damascus Gate, there used to be this inner wall. And this inner wall had what was known as the Sheep Gate. The Sheep Gate is really close to the Golden Gate or the gate called Beautiful that Jesus is going to come through in the book of Zechariah when he lands in the Mount of Olives. That's where he's going to run through. So that's the proximity. I don't know if you guys have ever looked at pictures or maps of what is in Jerusalem there, but the Sheep Gate is just to the north. And right outside of that, if you go there today, it's in the Muslim Quarter. And the Muslim quarter, it's all the Muslims. And then you have the Christian quarter, and that's more towards the west. And you have the Jewish quarter, and that is right in front of the western wall in that surrounding area. And then you have the eastern Christian quarter, and that's to the south. And so that's in the old city of Jerusalem. And all the streets are real old there, and it's very narrow. It's very crowded during the day, and especially back in Jesus' time, I would say it was the same thing. Now, if you go through the Sheep Gate and you go into the Muslim Quarter, you will come to what is now known as St. Anne's Church. And St. Anne's Church is made out of stone, and it is acoustically perfect. When you go in there, you'll hear groups come in, and they'll sing like a hallelujah chorus with no instruments at all everybody just sings and it resonates the the voices once the uh i've seen choir directors just stop everybody and the sound just keeps on going and going and going it's a big echo chamber in there if you go right outside it's a big drop and there are these five covered colonnades it'd be like these columns that come up out of the ground and it's down deep it's it's uh 
a lot of years, a couple centuries, where this is filled up with dirt, and they've excavated it. <clears throat> and you have these colonnades or porches that you could go out onto and then into the water. And it wasn't very deep, but you could go out there into the water. And so this is where Jesus is located. St. Anne's Church wasn't there at the time, obviously, but he went out the Sheep Gate and directly to this pool. Now, Bethesda is, the meaning of Bethesda is house of mercy. And what would happen is those who were sick, they would hang out in the area, and it is said that an angel would roil the water. It would cause it to bubble and to effervesce and and just kind of move around. And when that happened, the first person who got in to the water got healed. And this used to happen. And so this guy, I think it's 38 years he's been sitting there, he can't make it into the water. Everybody makes it in before him. And so this is the setting. Jesus just shows up. He's kind of incognito, waiting for the water to roil. And water doesn't roil, but Jesus does his thing. So you have the context. Verse 3 says, Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. When I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. So Jesus didn't reach down and pray for him. At least we we're not told that he does that. He just says, get up, come on, let's go. And so he gets up. Now, you have number one there. Healing on the Sabbath was prohibited by the Jews. P-R-O-H-I-B-I-T-E-D. Did you get that? Really? Not really? P-R-O-H-I-B-I-T-E-D. There we go. Okay. He- healing on the Sabbath was prohibited by the Jews. Now, they had the law to kind of back them up if you're doing any kind of work. In Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 21, this is what it says. This is what the Lord says. Be careful not to carry a load on the Sabbath day or bring it through the gates of Jerusalem. Do not bring a load out of your houses or do any work on the Sabbath, but keep the Sabbath day holy as I commanded your forefathers. Now, Jesus wasn't breaking the Sabbath. Jesus was the Lord of the Sabbath. He wasn't telling this guy to break the Sabbath. He's in charge. He can do what he wants, right? But carrying your bed is not an act of work. It's it's a bedroll. I don't know if you guys know what a bedroll is, but it's probably smaller than a sleeping bag. Uh, if you watch the old westerns, they used to have it on the back of their horses that would be back there. So he just rolls that up. He gets up and he walks away. And the Jews see him picking this thing up. Now, what did they miss? They missed the miracle. I mean, they're so worried about the mat, they missed the miracle of this guy getting up and walking who had been there for how long? 38 years. But they're so intent on the rules that they just blow it. At once, verse 9, the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked the day which... This took place was the Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. 
And so they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick up your mat and walk? Well, the second point here is, the mat was more important than the miracle. And we just covered this, but they they missed the most important thing. It, It would be like the Red Sea parting and they're worried that somebody's going to get wet. You know, it's it's that insignificant, this idea of picking up the mat. <clears throat> and the miracle worker, he remained mysterious. He didn't come out and just make himself known because at this particular time, the Jews were looking for reasons to accuse him. They did want to kill him already, but because of this act, we're going to see that they wanted to kill him all the more. Verse 13 says... The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. And that leads us to number three. Sin can be the source of sickness. Now, before I go too far down that road, you have the letter A there. Not all sickness is caused by sin. John chapter 9, verse 2 says, His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? He says, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. And so just because somebody sins doesn't mean it's going to result in a sickness. Now, what is a modern-day sickness that is a result of sin? AIDS. Right, STDs. Um, STDs, and we'll keep it on that level for younger years. But STDs, when I was, when I had my first class in seventh grade to find out about what they called them was different back then, but STDs, there were two, maybe a third one that you could get. And now there are like 20 that somebody can be exposed to and get and have their life just wrecked. And so sin can cause sickness. Uh, B there says sin caused sickness and death. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27, it reads, uh, this is about communion, uh, the Lord's Supper. Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick. And a number of you, and fallen asleep means died. What they were doing is they would have these love feasts. And during these love feasts, they would get together. They'd have families come in. Like, for instance, the Bryant family comes. And they have 17 children. And so they bring food for all 17 children when they come. And they don't share it with anybody else. And then there would be somebody who would come to the feast that wouldn't have anything except for a small bag of Doritos. And that's all they'd had for a couple of days. And they brought their Doritos to share. But the Bryant family has turkey and ham and all kinds of good stuff. And they don't share it with anybody. And they were eating the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner is what was taking place. And the Lord judged them in the church for that and eating this meal in an unworthy manner and taking of communion because the communion you take one loaf right what do you do with the one loaf you break it and you distribute it well if you're going to eat a meal you take what you have divide it up 
and distribute it. What did God do with manna? He provided it for everybody. And so they were kind of violating that. And God said, that's it. You guys are being judged for this. And some of you have gotten sick. And some of you have actually died because of this disobedience. See there, sin caused death. In Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, if you uh, recall what was going on, the people, they ended up, in the first century church, taking their possessions and their land and their houses and they would sell them and they would give the money to the apostles and once they gave it to the apostles, they would divide it up amongst the people and they would have everything that they would share in common. It was kind of like uh, communal living. If you go to Israel today, they have kibbutzim or kibbutz and you can stay on a kibbutz and some of them raise fish up in uh, the city of Dan, there is a kibbutz up there, and they have the best trout you could ever eat. If you go over to the east side by uh, the Gadarenes, there is a place that you can stay over there, and it is a kibbutz, and everybody lives on the kibbutz, and they share everything in common. It's a little commune is what it is. And so that's what the first century church was doing. There was many who were, uh, they were lacking uh, in some way. And this is the way that they did that. So Ananias and Sapphira, they decided to sell a piece of property. And once they sold the property, they were going to take the funds from that and they were going to give it to the apostles. But they decided between themselves that they were going to hold back a portion of the money. And they went before the apostles, specifically Peter, and they said, this is how much we sold it for, which was a lie. It wasn't the truth. And because of that, uh, Ananias died he judged him right there because you have lied it says you have lied to god in acts chapter 5 and the holy spirit is also in the midst here so that's how you know the holy spirit is god because you've lied to the spirit of god you've lied to god and so peter uh, god judged him through peter and he just fell down dead right there then his wife comes in later looking for him and uh, Sapphira, she goes, where's my husband, basically? Shows up, and how much did you sell the land for? And they had agreed ahead of time, so she said the same amount that her husband had said. And she said, because of that, the men who took out your husband are now coming to take you. And she died right there and took him out of the church. Now imagine if today that same thing was revealed for us. Uh, just people dying left and right. The Lord wanted the church to know what it was to live a righteous life and to do uh, like the Ten Commandments, do not bear false witness. And they broke one of the Ten Commandments. And so God judged them right there. And so this sin can cause death, and it did in Acts chapter 5. Then there was D, during, oh, dying early as a result of wickedness or sin and foolishness. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 17 says, do not be over wicked and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? I just saw a video of a man. He walked into a store and there was a security guard. He was acting crazy. I think the security guard was going to stop him from going out and he pulls out a knife. You saw that? He pulls out a knife, sticks it right up to the security guard's neck. And the security guard goes, Okay, you know, he wasn't armed. He just let the guy go. And then when he got out onto the sidewalk, a police cruiser came up. And as a police cruiser came up, they opened up the doors. I think they got a APB on him. They opened up the doors. They were going to get out. This guy ran 
to the driver's side door. The police officer that was in there opened his door to get out. He couldn't get out, and the guy was coming in to stab him. And so because of his foolishness, the police officer shot him, what was it, six times? I think he shot him six times because the guy was acting foolishly. Now they say he might have been mentally unstable and the police officer was condemned and said he should have been willing to be stabbed to death rather than, we could just go on and on about that. But this guy was acting stupidly. I mean, we just don't want to do stupid things, right? Uh, Did you hear about the guy who tried to crawl up Trump Tower today? with the suction cups imagine if you got up there a little bit and one of those suction cups failed you know that's just being stupid you don't climb a a building like that on the outside as a publicity stunt because you can die you know doing stuff like that and so we don't want to be overly wicked or overly foolish because it can cause us to die before our time right so sickness can cause death and we want to make sure we don't act or excuse me Sin can cause sickness and it can cause death. Not always, but it can. Verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Okay, so there's two reasons the Jews wanted to kill Jesus. Number one was the Sabbath. They was violating what they had in mind for the Sabbath. And secondly, because he called himself God. Now, there's a lot of people who say that Jesus doesn't call himself God in Scripture No, he was doing that. He was equating himself to the Father, as we'll see in these next 10 points here. There's no mistaking. How many points would you need to be convinced that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah, that he is, in fact, the Son of God, that he is, in fact, God? How many points would be necessary to convince you, or how many people? Uh, Scripture, and we'll get to in a minute, but how many people are required to establish a matter in Scripture? Two or at the most three. And it's repeated several times in Scripture, especially if it's a capital case. There's two or at the most three, and they have to be reliable witnesses. And the uh, trial of Jesus, the witnesses were not reliable. Okay, so two reasons the Jews wanted to kill Jesus. Healing on the Sabbath and Jesus calling himself God. Now, this is the Roman numeral two. We're in accusal and defaming of Jesus. The number one there is Jesus claimed what the Father did, he did. An accusation being made was that Jesus was not equal to the Father and that he was a lawbreaker because he performed miracles or he worked on the Sabbath. Have you ever heard the phrase miracle worker? So if you perform a miracle, it's work. You do it on the Sabbath. It's a violation, therefore you're sinning, and that's why the Jews wanted to kill him. Forget the fact that the guy had been lame for 38 years. It just boggles my mind how they couldn't see that. And it is a defamation of character of Jesus to say that he is not God, to make Jesus simply a prophet or a good teacher, and that's all he is. 
that is a defamation of his character because Jesus is in fact God. Now, uh, certain verses, and I like to use these deity verses every once in a while, Titus 2.13, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, Romans 9.5, for theirs is a patriarchs from whom is traced the human ancestry of Christ who is God over all, forever praised, amen. There's several different scriptures in the New Testament. 1 John 5.20, you can look that one up. Also, uh, let's see, Revelation chapter 22, uh, verse 12, all the way through verse 16. You can look those up as well. It talks about the deity of Jesus Christ. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. That's also in Isaiah 44, verse 6. And so you can look those up in Scripture. It's just over and over. It tells us that Jesus is God, and that's why the Jews wanted to kill him. Third, Roman numeral three, the authentic claims of Jesus. The word here that I've chosen to use is your bona fides, bona fides, bona fides, however you want to say it, depending on if you're from England or United States. Uh, the bona fides or bona fides are evidence which shows that what you have said about yourself is true. Evidence showing that what you de- deserve, or excuse me, that you deserve a position or that you can be trusted. That's what a bona fide or bona fides is. Okay, number one, Jesus only does what the Father does. Verse 19 says, Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees the Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son does also. In their mind, it might be, well, like a son doing what his father does, a little child doing what his father does. They would say the gap is even farther than that between humans and God the Father. Jesus just said, nope, I do exactly what the Father does. And so they knew that that meant You're claiming to be God. Whatever God does, the Father, that's what you do as well. And, of course, they couldn't stand that. They looked for a reason to kill him. Verse 20, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than these. Then second, the Son gives life at his discretion. Verse 21 says, for just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Now, there's only one that can give life, right? It's Jesus Christ. And I have a tendency to think it was Jesus who breathed the breath of life into Adam in the garden. There's no reason not to believe that it wasn't him right there. Uh, Third, the son has the power to judge everyone. Verse 22 reads, Moreover, the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, and he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of God. So he does the work of the Father, he gives life at his own discretion, and he has the power to judge because the Father has given him that power. Fourth, the Son is to be honored just like the Father. Verse 23, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Years ago, there was a Jehovah Witness. We used to have him come out to the church. His name was Peter Barnes. And he came out of the Jehovah Witness organization. And he was like an overseer. He was like one of the heads. 
And he says there was one guy that witnessed him. He said the rest were just pushovers. When he'd go to the houses and people would say that they would be Christians and they would go to church, they would never have a response. He said he could just roll over them doctrinally. They wouldn't be able to respond to him. But there was one person who quoted this verse that says that the son may be honored just as the father is honored. And that stuck with him that nod at him it wouldn't let him go and he eventually became a christian he got saved because of that Uh, i don't even know if he's still alive but he went over to shadow mountain for several years and we would have him come out as well as bill mckeever and he was with mormon research ministry Uh, but they would testify you know the power of god and that's what it says here if you're going to honor the father well how do you honor the father well you worship the father well that means you worship jesus as well so that's what's being communicated there five whoever listens to the son and believes the father has eternal life verse 24 i tell you the truth whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned he has crossed over from death to life sixth whoever believes in or listens to the son will be raised from the dead verse 25 says i tell you the truth A time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. It's pretty incredible. That sounds like uh, the same voice that spoke creation into existence. Uh, Seven, the Son is equal to the Father. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the son of man. By the way, another uh, refutation of this idea that Jesus was only an angel. If you were to turn to Hebrews chapter 1, and I think it's in verse 8. God the Father calls Jesus God uh, in verse 8 of Hebrews chapter 1. Did you get that? You all set? So, and he is the one that will, uh, or that is equal to the Father. And even the Father calls him God. Verse 8, the dead are raised at the command of the Son. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. Now there's... How many resurrections are there? Can you guys tell me? You can, how many? Two. There's two resurrections. The first one began with Jesus rising from the dead. It's already started. The second part of that is going to be the rapture. First Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 and 51. The third part of the first resurrection is going to be at the end of the tribulation period when Jesus comes back. So it takes place in three parts. The first resurrection is not simply just one act. Now at the rapture, when the rapture takes place, all the people that have died from the time of Jesus when the church was uh, started until the time the rapture happens, all those believers will hear the voice of Jesus Christ and will come out of the graves and their bodies will be resurrected. Now, how that happens exactly, I don't know. 
I don't know that the dirt is going to fly out of the grave if it, if they're buried and then they're just going to ascend and fly up. I don't think it's going to happen that way because the scripture says in the flash and a twinkling of an eye, you'll be in the grave if you are not alive at the time of coming of Christ and you will be translated to meet the Lord in the air instantaneously. It will happen so quickly you can't even talk that fast or blink your eye that fast. So that's what's going to happen. And the dead in Christ are going to rise first than those who are remaining. Those of us, if we're still alive, then we go next. And we'll hear the trumpet call of God. We'll hear the voice of the archangel. And that's when we will be translated. And so that's where it says here we'll hear his voice. That's when we're going to be raised. It's either going to be that we died, we're in the graves, and we're going to be raised, or... We're alive and we immediately are translated to meet the Lord in the air. And we're going to go away on earth's time schedule for seven years and then we will come back. Um, and that has to do with the marriage supper of the Lamb and the question. Yes. So, um, the whole bringing Lazarus back from the dead, that was not considered a No, that was a resuscitation. He had to die again. Bummer. Right? He died twice. So he didn't get a new body. He just came out of the grave wrapped in the clothes. Right? And so same thing in the Old Testament. When Elijah uh, raised somebody from the dead, the Apostle Paul raised somebody from the dead, they had to die again. You know? So... Uh, that if they were here on earth and they'd still be alive if they had their new bodies because you get an eternal body at that point and that's in first corinthians chapter 15 that we get this brand new body and it is transformed okay yes oh yes oh even if somebody like if there was a believer on the titanic what is left of their body The molecules are somewhere, but they're in the fish. Somebody caught the fish. They ate the fish. You know, I mean, you just can, <clears throat> or you got fish emulsion, and you put that in the ground, and the grass took that up, and then the cow ate the grass, and then somebody ate the cow. And I mean, the molecules, who knows where they go, right? God, it's not a problem for God. But if you go to Jerusalem, if you stand on the Mount of Olives and you're looking towards the Gate Beautiful or the Golden Gate, all the graves are above ground. They are not in the ground. They are actually these sepulchers uh, made out of stone or marble. And they're, they believe that it, they're above the ground, so that means quicker resurrection, right? That they're just gonna, if they could push off the lid and they're going to be raised, those who believe in the resurrection. That's why they bury them above ground and there are thousands of these between the mount of olives and the gate beautiful if you look at any picture of the gate beautiful on the eastern side you will see all of these graves that are there and if you look east towards the mount of olives from the temple mount you will see all of these graves when you stand on the temple mount there's a little meeting area there and it just goes down a hill and it goes down to the the valley that's right there where they burn the trash and stuff. And that's where we get the name Gehenna. Uh, but anyhow, it goes right down to the bottom. And from that point, all of those bodies are going to be resurrected if they're believers in Christ. Uh, but 
I don't think any stones are going to be moved. I think they're just going to be translated to meet the Lord in the air. Other questions about this resurrection? And by the way, that body will never die again. It's going to be kind of cool. And you're going to fly. You're going to be meet the Lord in the air. <clears throat> now, there will be a resurrection. And at this resurrection, it says some will live to life or be raised to life and some will be condemned. Now, that has to do with the second resurrection. The second resurrection does not take place until after the first resurrection, after the thousand-year reign of Christ. Once the thousand-year reign of Christ is done, we know from uh, Peter that the entire universe is going to be done away with. It's going to melt. The elements are going to melt with a fervent heat, and all that's going to be left are the people that are raised from the dead that haven't already been raised in the first resurrection and they are going to be judged. See if their name is going to be in the book of life and there are other books which are going to be opened and that's going to, I'm sure, have records of what people did in their lives. And if they do not pass the test, if they do not have faith in Christ because there's going to be people that die in the thousand-year millennial reign and all the people that are not believers from the time of creation when it began, like uh, Cain and Abel, all the way back then, all of those people are going to be resurrected at the great white throne judgment. At that particular point, if the name is not found written in the book of life, they are cast into the lake of fire. That is not the same thing as we know of today as hell or the grave. It is a place of suffering, but this is another place. This is a place that was created for uh, the demons and Satan, and they're going to be cast into that, and everybody else who does not ask Jesus to be their Savior is going to be thrown there as well. And so that's the next, or that's the second resurrection. And I believe there will be some people saved during the millennial reign of Christ. They will live to be hundreds of years old, but some will die. And when they die and they're believers, they're going to be resurrected and they're going to be allowed to enter into glory. But all of those from all time, all history, it's going to be billions and billions of people and they're all going to be judged and we're all going to be there to witness it. So that's what's going to take place with the second resurrection. And it says some will be raised to eternal life and some to eternal punishment. And that is Matthew chapter 25 verse 46 and both are eternal so the life doesn't end and neither does the punishment okay secondly um, the, you mentioned that people who die in Christ yes um, will, go, will resurrect first and then those who are still here during the rapture will meet them in the end correct what about people who died that were faithful before Christ that's a great question <laughs> The commentators are split on that, like, for instance, Abraham and King David. Will they be resurrected to be part of the church and the marriage supper of the Lamb? I don't know. I don't know if they will. Um, God has a separate plan for Israel, that's for sure. And that's, by the way, part of dispensationalism as opposed to covenant theology. And Christians on both sides, good Christians on both sides, believe either one and it's okay uh, we don't have to fight over that stuff but the, the jews uh, how they play out as far as the church is concerned they are not part of the church they are called the wife of god 
we are called the bride of Christ. And so I'm really not sure how that works out, and I couldn't help you with that answer. Okay, other questions about that? We're all good? Now this, what number are we on here? Nine. Jesus only does the will of the Father. Verse 30. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. So he only does the will of the Father, which means he has to know what the Father's will is all the time. And to know that, you have to be in direct contact with the Father all the time. And so you could see by this point, the Jews are probably just pulling their hair out, at least the, the leaders of the Jews. Ten. Three others testify about Jesus. So there's three parts here. We have John the Baptist, the miracles, and the Father. Verse 31 says, If I testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. Now, could Jesus testify about himself, and would it be valid? Well, he's God. And you can't get any higher than that. And so, but it, as far as the people understanding him being a, a testimony to himself, they really are not going to accept that in a judicial forum. But he could do that, and it would still be right. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is valid. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Now that I accept human test, not that I accept human testimony, but I mentioned it so that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. I have a testimony weightier than that of John, for the very work that the Father has given me to finish, which I am doing, testifies that the Father has sent me. That's referring to the miracles. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. So he has three that testify, and that fulfills the requirement that is set forth in Deuteronomy 19, uh, verse 15, which we'll get to in a minute. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. So this idea of two or three to establish a matter, Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, one witness is not enough to convict a man accused of any crime or offense. He may have committed a matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Uh, Paul reiterated this in Second Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1. I think you have the verse there. This will be my third visit to you, Paul is saying to the Corinthian church. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. This is also the case in Matthew chapter 18. When there's to be church discipline that takes place, there has to be any matter has to be established by two or three witnesses and the church has to get together and the leaders of the church have to say, okay, if this person is not repentant, then the person is going to be asked to leave the church. But the church has to agree on it. Not one person, only one person can come forward and bring an accusation. You're not even supposed to entertain any kind of accusation whatsoever against anybody at any time if there are not two or three witnesses. We are on four, refusal to accept Jesus. Roman numeral number four. Under that we have number one, knowing the scriptures does not guarantee knowing God. Uh, The 
Jews refused to accept Jesus as the Messiah. Verse 39, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse, and that's the operative word there, to come to me to have life. I do not accept praise from men, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. Does anybody know who that is? That him? You will accept him? The Antichrist, yes. And the Antichrist is going to show up in Daniel chapter 9. It talks about him making a treaty with the Jews. So the Jews are going to accept him, and they will build their temple at that point. We know in three and a half years after this treaty is made, and this is during the tribulation period, that Antichrist will declare himself to be God, according to Daniel chapter 9. It starts, I think, at verse 25 and goes to verse 27 or 29 in there if you want to look it up and so that's who God already said you're going to accept the Antichrist and he's coming in his own name and they will not accept Christ who came because the father had sent him now going on Matthew chapter 12 verse 30 says he who is not with me is against me and he who does not gather with me scatters rejecting Christ means accepting antichrist now some people do this passively and some people do this actively did you guys hear the news that uh, there are some high schools that are seeking the students are seeking to have satanic clubs on the grounds of the schools just like christian clubs you, you heard about that <clears throat> and so they're petitioning for it do you think they'll get it yeah, <laughs> yeah they're they're definitely going to get that. And so they are actively supporting Satan and his dominion. Uh, there are people who do it passively. Now, do you guys have, can you think of an example of somebody who supports Satan and his activities passively? Yeah, there was a, I saw a, it was one episode where it's actually Satan. Yeah, I saw that. I saw the, the first show. I go, all right, I got to see this. What is this all about? Yeah. Of course, you know, especially the actors, right? The actors could just be carrying this out. But if you went to Hollywood and the producers of this stuff, and the directors. Do you think there might be some actively supporting that in Hollywood? Yeah, it certainly could be. Well, what about just the person who says, ah, I don't need your religion, your Christianity thing. They are also supporting the satanic realm because God says, I just read it to you in Matthew chapter 12, he who is not for me is against me. Who's against Christ? The anti-Christ. And so the people who reject Christianity, the people who reject Christ, are actually for this world and the king of this world, which is Satan. He's the ruler, the power, the dominion of the air. And so we want to make sure that we are never engaging in that by passively. Or, for instance, um, 
I've used this quote so often, and you guys <laughs> may say, yeah, you've said that before. Edmund Burke, all that is necessary for evil to succeed is for good men to do nothing. And so if we're doing nothing all the time, evil will succeed, and passively, we're not being active in promoting Christ and his kingdom. Well, we're just allowing it to just slip in, right? Satan and his kingdom. Uh, third, the Jews were living for the approval of others and not the approval from God. <coughs> That's what we just read. But in Galatians chapter 1, verse 8, Paul says this too when he preaches the true gospel. It says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul, the apostle, was a man pleaser before he got saved. He was trying to please the Sanhedrin, which he was probably a part of. He was doing the bidding of the leading Jews. He approved of the death of many of the Christians, and he forced them to recant at the threat of taking their life. And so he was doing their bidding. But no longer does he or did he seek the approval of men. And so whatever we do, if we shrink back from giving the gospel or being a witness from Christ, we're seeking the approval of those who are out there. We, we don't want to say too much. Now, there's a time to speak and a time to remain silent. But when it comes time to speak up, if we know God's guiding us, we need to speak up. Otherwise, we're seeking the approval of those who are around us. We want them to like us. And if you do any amount of witnessing at all, you'll be rejected. Uh, people will just put up a wall and say, ah, you don't know what you're talking about, mister. You know, so you want to make sure you stand for Christ. Verse 45, but do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would not believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? You know, it, it comes to this. Jesus did this miracle. They were so stuck on the Sabbath that they wanted to kill Jesus because he called himself God. He just he gave us these ten points with three witnesses at the end. And when all that took place, then there was just this riot that happened with the Jews and they were going to be murderous in their acts. From there... After the witness had been proclaimed, it is a terrible thing for Jesus to turn to them that they have dedicated their entire life to, a life of sacrifice, a life of studying the scripture, a life of think they're following God, a life of giving, I'm sure, at the temple. And, God, and Jesus shows up and says, you don't even know the Father. Now, what kind of indictment is that? That would be like somebody coming in here and said, you have been a Christian for 10 or 15 or 20 or 30 years and say they were a prophet and said, you don't even know the Father. Don't act like you do. How would you feel if that was taking place? Well, these guys just got angry. 
I'm sure they, they got my tan. They just turned all red and the veins were popping out of their necks and they just couldn't wait to kill him. There were several attempts on his life, I'm sure, and we know that he just slipped through the crowd. But it was an indictment on them. And so it goes from a miracle to not having the mercy of God. We want to make sure that we hold tight to these truths that Jesus is in fact God. He's the Messiah. He's just like the Father. I gave you the other deity scriptures. And so that's what God wanted us to know. He wanted us to know that, in fact, Jesus is God. It went from the miraculous to the misery for the Jews, and it was all due to their pride. Any questions at all? That's John chapter 5. We're all good, right? Okay, we're going to pray. Father, we thank you for uh, your word, revealing these truths to us, uh, that there were those who rejected the gospel, just as even now there are those who reject Jesus. Father, I pray it would not be those in church, the religious leaders, those who have lived their lives, at least they think so, for you. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to be sober-minded, that we take these truths to heart, tuck them away, and give them to others as we have the ability and you provide the opportunity. In Jesus' name.